This is the DevSecOps Days Podcast. DevSecOps Days Podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risk. Hi, this is Mark Miller, the Editor-in-Chief of DevSecOps podcast series. What we're doing with the podcast series is featuring people from around the world who are implementing or practitioners of DevSecOps, specifically focusing on the security aspect. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk to Curtis Yanko, who is the Director of Strategy and Global Alliances at Sonatype, and Scott McCarty, who is the Technical Product Manager at Red Hat. And we're going to talk about their new book called A Concise Introduction to DevSecOps. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Scott, I think I should say good afternoon to you. You're in Scotland, right? I am. Yeah, it's 3.15 here, p.m., yeah. And you pull inside the curtain behind you and there's a gigantic castle out your window. <laughs> yes, there is. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful setting. The Kurt, when I first heard that you were writing this and then you sent me over a copy, my first question to you was, who did you write the book for? It's a good question because I didn't really, you know, it being concise, that was sort of the driving factor. But I, but I think it's obviously introductory, right? Or, or people who are just trying to distill, maybe security practitioners who are sort of new to the game, uh, you know, coming, you know, as, as now we've introduced the word SEC and DevSecOps, and we're trying to really bring them into the tribe. Um, but really anyone who just wants to dip their toes in and start to understand what this is about. Scott, what's your background? What brings you into the DevSecOps realm? Yeah, so that's a, that's also a very good question. So, I've been I've been focused on containers for probably the last five ish years now at Red Hat. Before that was you know even before many many years ago, start off at uh, you know my career in in uh, at NASA Glenn Research Center for seven years and did a ton of security. And so early in my career, just got hammered with you know DoD training and hardening systems and you know, penetration testing and all kinds of chaos that, you know, initially comes and then just continued throughout a lot of my career. And so when you start with like a solid foundation in security, which is funny because those foundations really haven't changed, like your, your basics of confidentiality, you know, integrity, availability, uh, non-repudiation, which I love talking about to people nowadays, which still nobody still understands that, especially with container images. And and so when you kind of start with that foundation and then you move into this new world of things moving fast, I guess I feel like maybe I have a unique perspective of kind of both sides of this, like the early, more static way that we configured things from a security perspective and the more fast way that we change things. I, I, I kind of liken it to like the difference between speed and velocity. Speed is still important even within velocity. It just gives you direction as well. And I don't think with like DevSecOps or DevOps in general, like it changes the fundamentals, but it's a different way of thinking about how to get to the end uh, solution, you know, in, in that you have to think of how to enable things as opposed to just blocking certain things. You have to think about how do we set up systems in place. And so I think for me, at least contributing to this is kind of like helping people get their brain around that to me, you know, is kind of what I found important. Kurt, for 
Uh, years before your current position, you were working with a giant healthcare company, correct? And you started moving into this realm while you were actually a hardcore practitioner. I was, uh, I, when I tell people, I'm like, I, I go way back to the days of SCM for folks who remember that as, you know, when really we were talking about configuration management as a function of, of source code control and, and branching, right? So the, the, I'm really, really dating myself, but I, I, I see myself as really coming from that. And then I, you know, I was the build and release guy, and then I just evolved with that, right? So build and release sort of became agile and XP and all those concepts. Um, and then that sort of morphed into, you know, agile as we know it today. And then obviously uh, the DevOps movement. So I, I've just sort of been along for the ride from the beginning as a practitioner and then made the jump to the product company uh, almost four years ago. Now. The three things that you guys talk about in the book and just to open up the discussion here is you talk about people, process and tools. And when you talk about people, in my mind, People means culture and cultural transformation. Was that the thing you were thinking about in this chapter? Yeah, I mean, I've written a lot about what makes DevOps different from everything else that came before, and and culture is that thing. The culture, the culture is the most important part. We we started with that, but it's also the part that's hardest to understand. It's 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 probably the partest that's hard to wrap your head around and think about. You know, coming up with a project plan for. Our, the goal was to just kind of do one thing from each of those three domains, keep it concise and, and, and you know, take it from there. Scott, when you talk about culture and cultural transformation, Red Hat is massive. And I assume you eat your own dog food or drink your own champagne or whatever analogy you want with it. Has the cultural transformation at Red Hat happened uh, or is it just isolated pockets and teams that are actually implementing this stuff? That's that's actually a very complex question, even though it's mm -hmm. simple to ask, but but much harder to answer, because I'd probably talk about that in the context of like three different things. I'd probably talk about it in the context of the upstream open source development and, you know, every project's different. And then I talk about it in the downstream products and each product is somewhat different as well. And then I'd probably talk about it like with our customers and like where we're seeing our customers go. I'm interested in the customer aspect. I mean, the real practitioners that are doing just to be super transparent, I see people struggle at all three of those levels, right? Mm -hmm. the, yeah. the customers actually perhaps get driven the hardest because they're dr driven by, you know, requirements like PCI and things like that. So like there is some motivation to meet, you know, security needs upstream. It's a little less, you know, there's a little less force on them by any kind of mandate. That's kind of where I guess I see it at Red Hat. But, but the, the actual practitioners, like if you look at like, for example, our internal IT, our internal IT is pretty dialed in. Like they're, they're pretty good at this already. They, they are early adopters of like, for example, OpenShift and things like that. And so they move to a model of, you know, CICD where they're essentially making changes and then letting a system, you know, deploy things and then making changes to the system as opposed to making direct live changes, those kinds of things. Like they were pretty early adopters of that, I guess. And some of our customers are very early adopters of that, but then other ones are, less early, you know, it's a range, it's a gambit among our customers. When this chapter was being written, did you guys collaborate on it? Did somebody write the chapter, the other reviewed it? How did you get the, uh, the content for this chapter on the cultural transformation? This part really came from me more so because these were blogs I had written. Scott did a lot on the converged supply chain. So no, that we didn't do a lot of collaboration during the actual writing. A lot of that was done in advance and this book sort of just brought it together. 
um, you know, so it was writings that we've had done in the past in blog formats typically. So if people went back to your blogs in general for both of you, they could see this type of content consistently through your blogs? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The next thing that you guys talked about is process. And the subtitle there, Scott, is liberate the people. How do you associate process with liberating people? Well, you bring up something funny, actually. I typically tell people we need to build capitalist infrastructure, not <laughs> communist infrastructure. I'd actually say it's probably the opposite, actually the exact inverse of, of, of that. But, but you know, if you, think about, if you think about capitalism and communism, they both are a process to an extent. And I, I do think the, the, new, the new model of IT is really a, a market-driven, you know, you see the market-driven mentality of it so much more. If you think about the old school model, I mean, when I started, it was file a ticket to get access to storage, file a ticket to get access to network resources. Well, it's quite communist in nature, actually. It's a finite set of resources and you must go to the bureaucracy and ask for things. And if you look at the new model, it's more like set up a system such that the market produces good stuff. So I, I think, you know, in a way, that's what we mean by liberate, you know, not to be political about it in any way, but but there is there is a modern way of self-service is really a market driven solution. Right. And so we don't want though. I mean, I don't think in general we're advocating for like let people fail and do all kinds of crazy bad things and, you know, let some kind of, uh, you know, bad people into the marketplace. I think there is still an element of set up a, a process to allow people to you know the ability to transact when they want to but feel safe that the stuff that they're transacting on has already been kind of pre-approved and is well vetted, you know, that kind of thing. And then that the system has the capability to keep improving over time. So I guess maybe it is a bit of a hybrid. Some of this is stuff I had witnessed, Mark, in that once uh, and my team, when I was still in the insurance industry, once I got all these low value, menial, repetitive tasks off of our plate, it freed them up to start really thinking about helping us solve problems. And that and that whole thing to me is like, let the machines do what machines do best and let people do what they do best, which is think creatively and, and uh, you know, and basically the emerging solution of problems, right? That's where we're the strongest. Once we've codified it, we can relegate it to the machines. But there's just a night and day difference I saw in the folks working once we got a whole bunch of these things off their plate that really weren't mentally challenging them uh, and that they, could really only do one of two things, which is do it the way they were supposed to do it and nobody cared or do it wrong and everybody cared. Um, and once we got those off their plate, they got to do what they we do best, which is think and create and experiment and innovate. As you were talking there, one of the things that reminded me of is the organizational concept of getting things done. Automate the mundane and get the humans to do the thinking process. Yeah, that's that's definitely it. Like, you know, as we're solving problems, that's where people, you know, we can analyze it, we can see it, we can crawl through, we can start to think about solutions. But once we get it to the point that it's a button, then it can become, you know, that button can be triggered by the machines, right? And that was always the goal of everything was how do we take this thing that's a, a, a barrier to us? How do we make it so that any manager can do it because it's a button? Um, and once you get to there, it, it kind of is off your plate. You can, you know, once you get it into fire and forget phase, you can do that. You can fire and forget and then free your mind to go work on other things instead of staring at the log output to see if it actually is going to work. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'd add just a hair to it. Like once you can get it to be a button, then you can focus on how you want to change that button over time 
as a product, managing it almost right. like a life cycle of a product. And so that could be an item in a service catalog that could be a lot of different things, but like, it's a different way of thinking. It's about thinking about things over time versus just like, oh, I've got to finish this thing today and then I'm done with it. And then you forget about it forever. Like, like you kind of have to get it to a point where it's reproducible and now I can manage the reproducibility of that over time, like a product. And I think that's a fundamental difference. Like nowadays that you're seeing, you know, really things change in that way. That can actually provide some astounding results. I've actually talked to a company that said they were spending 56,000 man hours evaluating specific components to see if they could be used within the system or not. Obviously a very large company. And because of automation, they've got that down to zero hours of manpower. That's the power of automation. Oh, absolutely. And then think about that. Like, you know, is what is there real value in having a person doing those evaluations? And there's obvious there's tasks out there where I think people still really add value. But a lot of these things, once, like I said, once we really understand them and have codified them well, and we've been doing this throughout history, usually in Word docs and SharePoint. But now we do it in, in the form of code. It just sets you up then to not have to think about it as much. And you and now redirect your, your mental a capacity towards solving the next thing that you know the next barrier the next bottleneck the third idea in your book is tools and i think if i'm reading it correctly it's the concern that there's so many tools so far there hasn't been a consolidation of the industry yet there's just so much to choose from yeah we're dealing with big complex systems um no two of them are alike there's a tool for all of them. Mm -hmm. um, that's the bewildering part when you start to wade into this. They, you know, you get told, well, you got to automate everything, and for automate, you got to have tools. And then there's so many tools, and I think it just becomes really overwhelming. I so I purposely we left it last because on one hand they're least important, even though you can't get here without them. Tools are tools, and I, I like as I like to put it, I don't care how good your Snap-on tools are, it doesn't make you a better mechanic, and it doesn't make your car run better unless you know what to do with them, right? You know, like. You still still need to use them effectively. You still need to know what you're doing. But so that's why we focused, I think, in this is I'm trying to remember now in the book in tools that we focus on containers as an enabler in, in this case, because uh, a lot of what we're able to do now is because we've matured. The tools have matured to the point that we're we're really capable of, of operating in new ways like the converged supply chain stuff. Like those are just game changers that weren't, didn't exist for most of my career as a practitioner. You know, no matter how good we got at what we were doing, we were never gonna solve it the way we can solve it today with 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 what with the tools we have today. Yeah, so, you know, tools are tricky because you, can, you, you can't live without them, but you can't get too caught up in them uh, either, right? You have to be smart enough to know what it is they do and don't do and where their edges are you know, once you get really smart, you start thinking about, well, I can make my own tool, maybe. The thing that happens with the mental imagery of replacing tools is this concept of rip and replace, Scott. And what we found is that there's just too much change happening when you use that kind of concept. And what we have to do is think about incremental changes using the tools that we have with maybe a supplement of a new tool. Are you seeing that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the drawings we used in the book was kind of showing how with containers and Docker files, we're essentially mapping a process that's always existed. And 
it's an incremental technology addition in addition to an incremental human you know process addition basically if you think about <clears throat> the business problem we've been trying to solve for 20 years that i've been doing this it's you have different specialists right you have web developers you have database administrators you have sysadmins and all of these and security specialists all of these people are specialized at the skills that they have and there's obviously a lot of overlap right like a dba a sysadmin and a security specialist often work together to create like a secure database platform but they do each have their specializations and if you think about what we're really trying to do back to kurt's point of allow the humans to be creative you know you want each of these specialists to be able to provide their input in some way in a healthy you know way that is controlled and we can track it et cetera et cetera it starts to sound like i'm saying the word git and i basically am you know when, when you have a set of tools that enable you to now have like a technical tracking of how these these users interact to collaborate to essentially modify the user space of an operating system that's kind of what containers have allowed and so like if you look at it it's a it's a it's an incremental technology advantage. It's still the user space of an operating system. And what these three users have always been doing was, was basically collaborating to modify the, you know, the agreement about how they were gonna modify the user space of an operating system. Except back in the day, they would just let that user space live on for five years or seven or 10. I had servers that were 10 years old, you know, before they got deprecated. Nowadays, that might live within a container image for half of a day, and then they may change the agreement, you know, and the agreement might right. keep changing. And the agreement may change very quickly. And that's the kind of the, to the point of what Kurt said, you know, that's the piece that people have to get their brain around. That agreement has to change quicker than it used to. You know, before we used to have the agreement and then that would live on for, it was like a constitution. It just lived on for years and years. Now it's more like a, uh, you know, it's more like a blog. We have to keep changing it quickly and keep, keep changing that agreed, you know, that agreement, contractual agreement between us. And so, yeah, it's an incremental process change. It's an incremental technology change. And it's a, you know, it's an incremental, it's definitely, I would say, like Kurt said, it's a bigger cultural change though. Probably cultural is the biggest one. You bring up a point about tracking how teams interact with each other. Mick Kirsten is working hard on doing value stream mapping and how you can actually map the value of each of those teams to the overall business objective. And it seems like when we're talking about DevSecOps and the DevOps movement in general, that's an intrinsic part of it because things are moving so quickly and so fast that you have to know how these teams interact or you're losing the value of what you're trying to do. That, that brings up something that I've always found intrinsically interesting in that way. I think historically we've looked at security and operations as bottom line costs and we've just budgeted for those and we're like here's the bottom line cost and we've been pretty good at mapping the top line value that we assign to developers because they create new things that then make revenue and so if you even look at i mean it took me 20 years to kind of maybe recognize this but but even if you look the way bonuses are done among professionals right like operations and security people get bonused if they get bonused at all very differently than developers do. And um, developers will get bonus when a project's done, whereas sysadmins might get a one year, you know, once a year bonus or something that's more aligned with like cap, you know, essentially OPEX, you know, operational expenses. And so, yeah, I find that interesting how you bridge that gap because fundamentally that's, maybe that's the, I've, I've heard the biz dev sec ops, you know, right? Like at the end of the day, we keep, we keep adding new things into this, right? And uh, I mean, in, in reality, it, I think this is, you know, I think DevOps was the beginning. DevSecOps is probably 2.0. 
But in reality, what we're seeing is, is we need all of the pieces of the business That's to right. kind of start to understand what each other are doing better. Yeah, we talk about, I mentioned that in the beginning of the book because they're purposely out of scope, but really every facet of the business gets involved in this in some way because you have to understand your role in getting new value to your customers. And and I don't care what you do, you probably have a role in that. And and then value stream mapping to me is fascinating because it's really the second coming of Six Sigma, right? I, I feel like we had a whole generation go through Six Sigma and I, I feel like the shortcoming there was it was always localized, right? It was always, they would send in the black belts to go to a team and help them optimize their process and never pulled the lens back to look at the bigger process, right? And we know from Deming that sometimes my process may need to be suboptimal for me to be optimal for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. So so there's this, this trade-off that we've never done in the past with, with things like Six Sigma. It's really having that heart, you know, heartfelt look at why do we do this and does it as, you know, would the customer pay me for it in Six Sigma terms? Or is this something they appreciate or is this a complete waste of time from the customer perspective? Like they could care less uh, if we do this and making that a part of the cost uh, doesn't add value to them. So it, it's exciting to see all these things mature and coalesce into this, you know, new thing that we call DevOps, which is this really this absolutely right a business-wide holistic view of what it is we do and and how can we back to your earlier point how can we always be ready to adapt to change right because that's the other thing you just have to be the pace of change is so fast that if you can't adapt to change you're not going to be able to keep up so that's the that's the world we find ourselves in where, where you know we have to really lean out our processes but then be ready for the next the next tool, the next, uh, the next, uh, you know, just the next thing, right? Or, or the, you know, a mark, a change in the market, right? You know, all of a sudden, you, there's a big disruptor in your space. You're going to have to be in a position to respond. It seems to me, from a business perspective, as we're looking at DevSecOps and and thinking about your book, the other books, the whole process of changing the culture of development and relating that to business that the Holy Grail would be able to draw a direct line from what we're talking about here to business ROI. And to me, that's what Mick's trying to work on too. But to me, from a business standpoint, that allows us to bring the C-level suite into the discussion who is sorely missing from what we're talking about here. I've thought through this a little bit in that like, you know, in my current role, I even have to do things like sales enablement, where like maybe you have to you have to like educate sales on how to sell the thing that you think has value, right? <laughs> and so, like, if you look at that value stream, it cuts it cuts across so many different business units and so many different um, you know functions of the business. And it's you might even I mean, one can quickly if you've done any calculus, you know, you can quickly see that this gets you know, you could, you could probably find PID upper and lower boundaries for like a PID loop if you've done process engineering and see like how much enablement's enough, how much security is enough, how much stability is enough, how much agility is enough. You know, like you could probably find the upper and lower bounds and the, and the optimalness of each of those, you know, in, in the business. But I still suspect we're, I don't know how far away we are from that. I think all of us have a gut feeling when we're That's doing right. enough in all of those. But like none of us actually have quantitative evidence to prove that we're right. And and for some reason, I think that's what makes us like, you know, my title is principal product manager at this point. But like, I guess that's why, where we get these titles from, right? Like those are the people that have the gut feeling 
about what the right optimum levels of each of those things are. And then for some reason, those people are able to communicate and collaborate a little bit better because they kind of have a gut feeling for the guy on the other side of the wall or gal on the other side of the wall and how much, you know, agility or how much security or how much field enablement or how much, you know, of all these different things. It's a, it's tremendously interesting, but it's really hard to put a number on. Yeah, it, 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 it's definitely interesting. And I think that's one of the the upshots, though, is for in the early days of these types of initiatives, the ROI is so it's almost too good to be true, right? It's almost staggering how much waste we have in our systems between ticketing, queuing theory type things, uh, rework. And so conservatively on my team, before I came to Sonatype, I just conservatively said, I felt like pretty much 50% of our time was being wasted before we started getting to some buttons, right? We, I just, there was just so much time that we were spending doing low value tasks that once we got them off, uh, we were able to demonstrate significant ROI on one small team supporting one business unit. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm talking ROI in the millions of dollars over the year. And a lot of these are soft dollars, right? So you have to be careful. It, it's just interesting. There's there's really compelling financial gains to be had in the early days, especially as as we all mature. It's going to get it's going to get harder and harder to eke out more. But I think in, at least initially there's really significant ROI to be had because there's just so much waste. I've been talking to Curtis Yanko and Scott McCarty about their new book, A Concise Intro in DevSecOps, to DevSecOps. Curtis, thank you so much. Always good to talk to you. And also to see that all-day DevOps shirt being displayed so prominently. And so always good to catch up with you. Scott, thank you for taking your time. I know you're in Scotland and you got a castle right outside your window. I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> Thanks for having me. All right, great. Thanks, Mark. Oh, you're welcome. So we'll call it a day here. This is Mark Miller, Executive Director of the DevSecOps Days podcast series. And we will be doing a transcription that if you'd like to download the transcription, that will be available on the DevSecOps Days site. This is the DevSecOps Days Podcast. DevSecOps Days Podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risk. <laughs>